and starting to unpack all the racism and microaggressions. Um, they weren't these super, like, I think that's the thing that people don't un always understand that they're not necessarily these, like, brutal, traumatic experiences, but there's these little things. I get asked on a daily basis, where are you from? Connecticut. No, but where are you really from? Like, you mean before I was born? Welcome to the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. My name is Steve Wopolinik. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and one of the founders of the Promethean Project. Our guests are people who have broke the chains of their limitations and found the strength of their potential. We offer their stories as inspiration and as guidance to help others navigate their quest to find their flame. Welcome back to the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. Our episode today is episode 58 with Dr. Priya Pundit. Priya and I met while working for a company doing mental health counseling, in-home counseling, and in-office counseling. Priya and I have stayed in contact since then, and she's gone on to get her doctorate at Springfield College, which is where I got my master's. We talk about that a little bit in the podcast and just how informative Springfield College was in our practice. Priya and I talk a lot about intersectionality in this podcast, a little bit about critical race theory. She gets very personal with some of her stories, racism that she's dealt with, and we talk about how this all kind of wraps up in the work that we do, but also what we need to do moving forward to help break down some of the stereotypes and stigmas that exist and start building more communities and seeing our differences and honoring them to form connection and community with everyone. So it's a really informative podcast. I'm really excited for you all to listen to it. I also do want to point out Priya did recommend something for me to watch when we did this interview. It's called The Problem with the Poo. And it deals specifically with the, the racism tied to the character Pooh in The Simpsons. I've since watched it since talking to her. And I think it's a really pertinent thing to pay attention to because it talks about racism and talks about the importance of representation. So without further ado, here's Dr. Priya Pundit. In a world where humanity's potential is imprisoned and locked away, is to break the chains and find our flame. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Priya Pundit. Really excited to have you here. Um, we're really excited. We're going to collaborate in about a month or so. You're going to be a guest speaker on our uh, Stigma is Curable events. But I thought it would be awesome to have you here and just kind of talk about everything you do and every the journey that you've been following and everything that's kind of come along the way. So I know that we used to work together and we've been connected through social media since then, but I'm wondering if you could explain to our listeners just 
who you are, what your passions are, and, you know, a, a quick jaunt down your life, trials and tribulations. Okay, so yeah, um, as you mentioned, we, we worked together back in the day um, when I just graduated from my master's program. I think you went to Springfield as well. I did, uh, I did. Yeah, so I did that, and then I went back to Springfield College for my doctorate, um, which been five years um, since then. And so I was actually in the world of college counseling for a lot of my professional career. Um, and I actually take, took a whole new journey this last year in going into geriatric psychology, um, working with elderly people, specifically in like nursing homes, skilled nursing, assisted living facilities, just to still see some younger age people um, who you know, may have had an accident or just there for rehab um, in that kind of setting. And so that's it's been a new journey for me going from one age of the one group of the spectrum age-wise and then to the other. So right. working on that. But in that time, I've, I've also become a mom and a wife, well, wife first and then mom. Um, my son's almost two now. So it's been- Wow, that's awesome. Road. Yeah. Very cool. So- Let's start with the basics. What kind of drew you towards this field of uh, psychology? Sure. So I'd say I went into college not really knowing what I wanted to do, but my dad was really trying to live vicariously through me and wanted me to be a pharmacist. Um, back in the day when he was in high school, his chemistry teacher was really pushing him towards that but my dad was not very academically inclined and in those days pharmacy was five years he's like I'm not going to college for five years he ended up actually going to college for five years because he switched around what he was doing but he really pushed that with me and I didn't know what I wanted to do so I went with it but day one I changed my mind I had taken a summer course um, intro to psych course, and I really wanted to do that. Um, and then I think after that, I actually had my own experiences with being, um, like getting mental health treatment, which really solidified, like, I want to be working in this field. Um, and that really was where my passion started. But it was a, it was a hard road because culturally, it's not something that's been really accepted or understood. Um, I'm Indian by heritage and, and in the Indian culture, just Asian culture altogether, mental health is, is not something we talk about. It's not something you really receive treatment for. So kind of branching out into that world definitely got a lot of like looks, like what are you doing? Is this real science? Are you a real doctor? Oh yeah, I've, I've gotten all of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I do think it, as we were talking about doing the podcast and, and a little bit of what we're going to talk about with stigma is it curable are these intersectionalities of culture and, and expectations on just everything. But also, I think we you and I can kind of speak to it with mental health and, and, and have a focal point on that. Um, and that's got to be weird to to kind of go in. Well, one, to feel kind of a little pressure to go a certain way from, from your father, but then to really chase something like, oh, this makes more sense to me and, and have people not really understand that. I mean, I think there are some levels to this in general, but 
if we just talk strictly about mental health, so much is not understood by that. I mean, it's cliche. I mean, how many times I've been asked how many times if I'm just talking to someone, even if it's about comic books, say, well, if I tell you who my favorite comic book character is, are you going to psychoanalyze that? I, I don't have I'm the time. <laughs> and, and I too also kind of came to the field because of my own anxiety and depression and kind of connection to trying to figure that out. Um, I mean, initially it was, I was confused. Uh, I've said a couple of times on the podcast, it was just because I used to watch Growing Pains and, you know, the dad was a, a counselor there. And I was like, well, I guess that could be cool. I, I helped my friends out, but it really um, kind of became more in depth as I went through college and was experiencing my own depression and my own lack of motivation and really struggling with uh, past trauma. So um, it's int- I wonder how many people in the field kind of come into it from that entry point sometimes. I feel like a lot of us do. I mean, um, I think it was one of, one of my first supervisors when I entered my doctoral program called us wounded healers, yeah. like from our own experience, like we're giving a lens, like we have, even if our clients don't necessarily know that we share a lens with them based on self-disclosure and boundaries, you know, we add our own lens based on our own experience. Yeah. I like that. Wounded healers. I mean, it makes sense, but it's, it's also a weird line to follow sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm pretty upfront, like I, with disclosure with my clients, obviously nothing too intense, but I, I like to approach them with the same kind of approach I, w- I would anyone and just say, look, you know what we're going to talk about. I know it's not easy, but it's something I've gone through. It's also, you know, some of the skill building stuff we're talking about is something I've had to kind of develop along my way, not just with training, but just with my own personal anxieties or my depressions. And, you know, I'm never going to ask you to try something that I, I haven't tried before or, you know, haven't given some thought to before. It may look different. It's not going to be the same path, but I want you to know it's coming from a place of being a person, but also a professional in this situation. Exactly. I mean, I feel like I do very similar, but I think the path of self-disclosure with college students, especially since I look very young, I often got like mistaken for a college student myself um, on campus. I'm like, no, I'm actually staff. Um, So having those boundaries, but now being in the world with older generations, like having to actually do a lot more self-disclosure just because they really are so like they're feeling really lonely. The pandemic doesn't, hasn't helped. There's a lot of restrictions um, put on nursing homes and rehab facilities. So yeah, I, I, you know, I talk about my son and my husband and my life with them because it, it just reminds them of like what their experiences were back in the day. So I think there's definitely value to self-disclosure. I used to get mistaken for uh, a younger kid but now that my beard's grown out and has a bunch of white in it, it doesn't happen as much but when I shave people don't really understand but when the beard's here it's like no you're definitely older so <laughs> the the gray and the white coming in um that your conversation about COVID I think is actually a point I wanted to get to in the interview too because I believe that when COVID started you were working with college-age students and then not necessarily midpoint, but somewhere along the lane, the ways when you transition to more of a geriatric setting 
I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the difference on if, if you saw any difference or if it was kind of the same things you, you talked about in those settings uh, as, as you span the pandemic. Uh, definitely major difference. I mean, when I first, so when the pandemic first hit, I actually, I had gotten sick and I was all worried. I'm like, oh my gosh, what if I have COVID? And, you know, at that point, the, um, we were just hearing more about it and it was getting more serious. And my administrators like, go home, like, don't come back until you're fever free, like whatever. But I think I'd gone home on a Thursday and by Monday we were shut down. I was like, don't come back. No one's allowed back on campus, not even to get your stuff. Like it, it is what it is. So we ended up doing um, uh, tele mental health for the rest of the semester and then the following semester, which I think was really useful. Um, it was it was a weird transition, like, you know, going from like one week we're seeing patients in our office to like the next very next week, like figuring out how are we gonna set this up? How is this gonna maintain like ethical guidelines and how are we gonna make this work? But I think our staff came together. The students were really, you know, I think at first they were fine, but as it, as it progressed, they were definitely feeling it, like not really having the college experience, seniors not being able to graduate, not being able to work as effectively in their own houses with their families and dynamics that were going on. Um, and it was really hard for me because I, my son was home, his daycare was shut down. So that was a challenge. Yeah. Then going, I, I went, I finished half the fall semester before I changed jobs and then going into buildings where COVID was present, like you're all PPE'd up, um, you're going into these rooms. A lot of my patients were not very cognitively aware all the time. So they were really confused as to like, well, who are these people who are coming in wearing masks and face shields and right, yeah. gowns for one but then not really sure why is their family not coming to see them? Where are they? And really having to remind them that the pandemic is happening, that this is dangerous. And they don't really have that understanding. So that was really challenging. Also, another challenge was just hearing. You know, these are people who have you know, loss of hearing as they've gotten older. And just, just that, like taking that for granted, like, but having a mask, we're wearing double masks, and then having a face shield, like, no one can hear you. Right, yeah. It was very, I think, in a, in a lot of ways, it was more challenging um, for these, you know, these people. I, I really felt for them, and I was hoping to just, like, bring some level of connection and comfort week to week that I could. And some did, did okay, but others really had a hard time with it. Yeah. I mean, I think when you're talking about telehealth and counseling through telehealth, you at least have the benefit of being able to see the person's face. Uh -huh. And we know like the, the way the brain works and connection works and the cranial nerves and how we kind of watch how people smile and how they talk and their eye movements and tonal shifts and things of that nature really informs us of where they are, like these, these micro expressions we can clue into without even knowing it. And then you know, the flip side almost, but you don't have that presence, right? The flip side, you, you completely flipped and you had that phys physicality and that presence with that person, but then all that stuff was obviously masked up yeah. and harder to see, harder to hear, harder to read. 
Uh -huh. And then, you know, also dealing with a population that may not be able to kind of understand certain aspects of what's, what the shift has been or, or what's going on or who's there and who's not. Yeah. Um, which one, and this is a cavalier question, but I'm just interested to kind of hear your perspective. For you as a counselor and a doctor, which one was harder for you to really, you know, deal with like self-care wise and, and at the end of the day? Honestly, telehealth, as, as a mom, and I've, you know, I've read so much about parents who were working from home, but then we had our children at home. And so it was just like trying to do two roles at the same time. And with, for me, my husband, um, he's in the construction industry. His dad owns the, um, the custom home business and construction never shut down. It's actually considered one of the essential businesses to stay open and they got busier than ever because their clientele are the super wealthy and just were stuck at home. Like, oh, I wanna do this, I wanna change that. I wanna build this house. So he was super busy. So he was working nine to five, nine to six some days. And I had to do two jobs at one time. So it, I think that became really hard. Look, my clients were great about it. I think the, the girls that I worked with were like taking my son as like their emotional support child kind of thing. Like, <laughs> oh, he's so cute. But like for me, it was really stressful. And I think a lot of working parents who were stuck at home doing dual roles had that experience and for you know when he, when we first started the pandemic he was only seven months old yeah. by the end of when I when I finally went into work in person he was like over a year old so the activity level really changed um and just the amount of attention he needed really changed so that was a big struggle for me so even though going into facilities thinking about COVID, wearing PPE and getting tested all the time was really challenging. I didn't have to do two roles at the same time. Right. I think that's actually a really good segue into to some of the, the deeper stuff that we had talked about talking about today. And I think as a whole, we can look at the pandemic as, you know, this, this big medical experience, experience of, of, of safety and you know, danger and all this, all this rolled into one, but I also think it started to highlight some of these concepts that we have in society. Obviously, we've seen a lot of um, stuff come to the forefront through George Floyd and, and, you know, racism kind of being met head on and people being uh, more vocal about it. But I think also it puts a lot of different disparities that people knew were there more into focus. And some of those things I think are dynamics related to, you know, sex and gender and cultures and religions and things of these aspects and how to balance all these things with being stuck at home and shifting some of the narrative of how we inter interact with people in general. And I actually think the pandemic has, you know, we have this history of way back uh, of in evolution of this us versus them mentality. And, you know, back I'm going to say back in the day, but it was way further back, you know, living in a system like that, you had to protect your community. And so it, it, it made sense. But I think we've evolved so much that it's not as clear 
And there are all these smaller components that come into it and how we define ourselves. And so sometimes we look at people who are different in different aspects and we adopt this us versus them mentality. And I think the pandemic just like inflamed that because now we're staying at home and going to the grocery store is almost like, ah, I can't talk to these people. I need to avoid these people. I, I, I'm going to wait and go down this aisle. And so I'm wondering, as we were talking about before, right, um, we wanted to talk a little bit about your journey on intersectionality. And I'm just, I'm just introducing it and I'll let you take it wherever you want to go with it or, or how you want to broach the subject. But I think it's a really pertinent thing to talk about and, and kind of put into this this concept of talking so people can understand because we have this us versus them mentality and that can even be internal, right? You know, sometimes the them is myself <laughs> and it's mm -hmm. concepts that I don't like about myself. But I think the reality of, of breaking down these walls is to talk about it, to interact, to support and get to understand the quote unquote them so that it's more of an us mentality, which sounds very privileged being a straight white man coming from, you know, where I'm at, but I, I do think it's an important thing to talk about. So I'm going to kick it over to you and here's a ball of a bunch of stuff I just threw together. You can do what you want. with it. Sure. So I guess in relating with the pandemic, I think one aspect of person of color that made it so much more complex was the election cycle was at the same time. So we're like kind right. of dealing with these two really like one obviously global, but one more local kind of issues at the same time. And they kind of came to a head. Um, and we saw the admin previous administration's response to the pandemic and a lot of opposing views um, on both sides. And so I think that was really challenging. Um, because I think that added to a lot of that us versus them mentality yeah. and lines are really clearly being drawn. Um, and it became a part where like you, you kind of struggle, like, is it safe to, to go out? Is it safe to, you know, a lot of times I was home and over the summer, like my university, we don't offer services over the summer. So I was just home purely and you know, I was, I was getting feeling really cooped up in my house and I wanted to take my son out. And my mom would be like, but you know, Tom's not home. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's such a great idea. Like just you by yourself. Um, my son is, although biracial, uh, my husband's white. Um, so although my son's biracial, he's white passing and I clearly am not. So there was that added pressure and concerns of like, well, what would that mean for me? Um, it was, it was not always the, the safest feeling. I mean, my, my town's fine. I think we're politically very diverse and I hadn't heard anything, but you never know. Right. So that made it even all the more challenging and all the more like isolating, I would think. But I think that, you know, this whole kind of goes so much deeper, obviously in the history of at least our country, um, obviously it goes back to the history of like, people in general as yeah. a race but you know for Americans it's so integral to the formation of our nation so it's it's really hard to escape but I think you know there have been so many movements that have really put it into the forefront 
in such a way that hasn't been done before, like with George Floyd and, and you know, I can't breathe and Black Lives Matter. I think it became so powerful, but it was also exhausting. Um, it's exhausting trying to talk with or reason with people who didn't have the same views or understand or mocked. Um, yet you're trying, you're, you feel an obligation to speak up and be an advocate, especially as somebody in this field. I think psychology, while our you know, um, organizations haven't always done right by people of color or trans people, LGBT community yeah. as a whole. I think mental health practitioners, I would say are really, we wanna be advocates for our clients. We want to advocate and, and so wanting to do that to, to change people's outlook. But it became really like to the point where I couldn't watch news or I couldn't be on social media for too long because it would like I physically get like ill from it yeah. yeah it was it was a lot um especially when you're raising like a biracial son and you know my husband doesn't have the same experiences that I've had um I think that was really not hard it was just an eye-opener for him because I don't think he really grew up with that mindset um and the town he grew up in was very majority white I mean that's that's Connecticut most of our towns yeah. <laughs> you know he grew up in the middle of suburbia very white very few people of color in his friends group I'm like literally when we go anywhere I'm you can probably guess like 75 80 percent of the time I'm the only person of color in a, in a group so that's you know, having to navigate that, having to have him understand my perspective. And when we first got together, we were starting to like really see with, you know, cell phone footage, the police brutality that was happening. It, it's not something I think that was something that people were shocked by, like, oh, this is a new trend. No, it wasn't new, but cell phone cameras were new. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The footage of it was new. Like that, right. that was what was new is the awareness. And it was happening all the time. And then I think Ferguson happened um, really early on in our engagement. And those are the conversations that we had with each other of like, you know, I, whatever your viewpoint is about that person, good or bad, like they didn't deserve what happened and those kind of conversations. And it was definitely really challenging because his family doesn't come from the same kind of background. Right. Um, and then when we, were pregnant before we were pregnant we were very I was very vocal about being very intentional about how we wanted to raise our child or children because I knew it was going to be interesting whatever way it went like whether they look more like me they were going to experience like racism if they look more like him I've heard stories where the parent who didn't look like their child like where it's questioned on you know, are you really their parent? Having to think about like, do I need to have a you know, copy of the birth certificate with me when I go certain places? Right. So being really mindful of, of this is what our life is gonna look like. I, do, I don't wish it for it to look like that, but how this is the reality. 
so it was it was a lot of struggle of like reality versus like okay what do i what part do i need to play to kind of change that system and i think obviously it just starts with having conversations that are uncomfortable and making your your experiences known and i think for me that really started happening in grad school um i don't know if you had allison mccann I was just going to ask you if it was that class because that was so pivotal for me. It was such a pivotal class for me trying to see other perspectives, but that just, that whole class blew, blew me away. Wow. You didn't even say what it is. Why, why don't oh, you introduce yeah. what class we're talking about? Oh, it was, it was like um, counseling diverse populations. Yeah. Um, and we had the best teacher. She, she is a white woman, but she's very informed. She makes herself very educated on the subject and, was did a really good job about, you know, we had, a, in our class, we had a mix of people who are people of color and then the majority was, was white, um, but kind of broadening people's perspectives. Um, I think we did a lot of reading on Daryl Blinksu, who's a Asian psychologist um, who I think, if I'm not mistaken, coined the term like on microaggressions, but he, he did all mm. the research, the foundation of that. So really um, unpacking a lot of like what different aspects of privilege are and oppression in a different light. And I think for me up until that point, because I grew up here and while my parents did a really good job of like immersing me in traditional culture, like English isn't even my first language, even though I was born here, I grew up in such a white town where there's so few people of color that I wanted to be white. I did everything to whitewash. I only had, like, we had Indian friends, like our family friends, but for school, like, I had white friends. That's, that's who you interacted with because there weren't really any other choices. Right. And um, I really wanted, wanted to be more white. Like, I hated my name. I hated the food that my mom would pass me because people would make fun of me. You know, people would make fun of me for being, like, Native American. I'm like, wrong kind of Indian but okay um so until I think it wasn't until that class where I really started to recognize my own like internalized oppression and I had a lot of conversations like tearful conversations with Allison after off like during office hours um about unpacking a lot of that stuff and I think that was a really important class for me to start really recognizing and starting to unpack all the racism and microaggressions because um, they weren't these super like, I think that's the thing that people don't un always understand that they're not necessarily these like brutal traumatic experiences, but there's these little things. I get asked on a daily basis, especially with the gener like population that I work with now, the generation that they tend to be from, like, well, where are you from? Connecticut. No, but where are you really from? Like, you mean before I was born? Because I was born <laughs> in Connecticut. Right. So just, and my husband, it took him so long. He's like, but they just want to know you. I'm like, but that question is inherently racist. It's the assumption yeah. that a person of color is not from the country. So it took a while for him to really get that. Yeah. I think, um, there's a couple points I want to 
go through and come back to. But I, 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 I do think we look as a society, we, I was just watching something this morning and someone was saying, yeah, you, it was on critical race theory. And they were interviewing people on if they thought it should be taught or not. And there was a white guy who was like, well, you know, I think it's important to, to learn about our history and the diversity and, you know, what happened, but, you know, America's not a racist country. And, you know, and, and that's the pivotal summation, I think, of a lot of this stuff. It's like, well, I'm not racist. I, you know, I, I'm not in the Klan. I'm not going around and doing these things. And I think it's been built up into such a, oh, you have to be blatantly racist to be racist. Right. And in reality, we all have these, you know, racist, racist biases that, that kind of exist and it's a spectrum. And so when someone set, tells you, hey, that's racist, you know, we, you know, we get defensive, right? And so that defense, well, the, that wasn't my intent. That wasn't my intent, blah, 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 blah. But the reality is you're being called in, right? And so, if, and I've been called in and I, you know, it, it took a long time to get past this concept of, hey, this is a learning experience. This is a place to kind of sit with it and, and try to understand a different lens than how you view the world, because that's the important part about this. And so you have to get past your own defensiveness and actually hear the message. And when you can do that, you can actually understand they're not saying you're in the clan. We don't like you, right? The people you're interacting with, regardless of whoever it is, um, I, and I think this spans spectrums of like sexism and, you, you know, like ableism and, and all this stuff, because I do really think you're just being called in to, to what's going on. And so if you view racism as this big thing and, oh, the people are going to think I'm, you know, in, in the Klan, I don't know why I keep coming back to that, but I guess that's a, a great symbol of white supremacy, right? So let's use that. Um, and say, no, people are trying to educate you and, and have you examine how you're viewing something and change. There's a huge amount of growth there and a huge amount of connection, right? And that's what we need. We have to get out of our own ways to kind of shift some of this so that you can hear the message instead of just reacting to that, that trigger point. Um, and, you know, I can't speak to anyone else's experience with that, but that that was so pivotal for me to start like moving forward. And a lot of it came from that class um, because it was interesting to see, you know, we started with racism and having this, these conversations. And one of my good friends was in that class with me and he, he's black. And he said to me, well, he said in general, like one of the questions was, do you feel like you could be your true self around white people and he said no and it blew my mind because you know I was kind of going through this thing oh you know we're being honest with each other we're being self and it wasn't directed towards me specifically but just culturally like some of the stuff that you know growing up you have to have to learn and to to navigate systems and, and things of this nature and the systemic oppression that exists and that was like I was hooked into that class after that moment because I was like, oh, I need to do a lot more work because here I am thinking I'm a liberal kind of open person. I'm doing counseling all about like helping people. And there's so much more to do. Um, yeah. And I think that's the piece that I think a lot of people struggle with is like, 
oh, how can I be whateverism or like racist, sexist, whatever. I've, you know, I have black friends. I support women's rights, blah, blah, blah. And that's the thing. It's, it's a journey though. Like it's always going to be a journey. I don't think there right. is any particular destination because there's always going to be times where we're part of the you know majority group and we fuck up I mean it happened (laughs) (laughs) like I and that was one of the things is I was really passionate about you know diversity and inclusion my me and my co uh intern during our doctoral intern year created a um curriculum on having these conversations um about race sex and gender honestly we had so many more isms to pack in our there's so much so much shut it down guys you're gonna be working on this for like five years if you have all these other things um and and it was it was so much but you know I think I love talking about that stuff I love that was one of my roles um, in a college campus was to train on diversity. And I would always kind of talk about like, well, what you see on the outside is, yeah, I'm, I'm clearly a woman and I'm a cis woman um, and I'm brown. So already, you know, some identifying, you know, parts of my minority um, identity. But what you don't know is I come from an upper middle class family. I come from five generations of, you know, doctoral higher education so in that way I have privilege so it's like we all have you know we're always in one foot in something so we have to unpack that and it, I think it really does come back to like that intersectionality piece because I see a lot of you know we I think the biggest argument with at least the white supremacy and racism is like well I grew up in poverty like what do you mean I didn't have a hard life I'm saying that But you didn't have it harder because of the color of your skin. You weren't denied certain things just based on your name. You're, you're, you know, that visible identity. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly true. And, you know, I think, and it gets to that, this other part about that class that I I felt was so powerful was because it, it wasn't just racism. It did span all these other isms. And it was interesting to see the shift as we as we went into all these other categories and how some people were you know in one category talking about their their oppression and and what had been happening to them and how they were affected by that ism and then you jump to the next one and it was harder to kind of hold that same concept right so like the biggest thing i saw that in was when we were talking about sexism right and these concepts that often kind of circulate around, uh, you know, well, I'll just use the specific example of um, how women dress was was a, a concept that came up. And Allison did a really great job of breaking that down. And then also just, you know, most people would hide behind stuff, but she made sure that you say, hey, no judgments here, just select what you would, how you would feel about this. And I remember being so shocked about what the shift was in that you know the the concept was like oh do you think that matters like do you think that actually is this kind saying something and perpetuating this or do you think you know sexism just kind of manifests in this way and the class was so divided and much more so than it was with racism because I think you know 
that was a topic that everyone was like, well, you know, we're doing the work, we're doing this, but then you shift to, you know, just an identity, a different identity. And it was just so split. And, you know, I think there was two or three guys out of the whole class who were on that side of saying, no, that's, you know, what a woman wears has should never perpetuate this idea. Like that's, that's not important. And then the majority were on the other side and it was just so shocking to have it be so blatant like that. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, I actually think that's one of the reasons why people are afraid of critical race theories because they feel like it's going to separate and divide, but also that needs to happen sometimes to see, like to call awareness to this stuff, to say, this isn't okay. Right. And I think, well, that's, so I've had like, I've had people challenge me on, well, then why, like people should be colorblind, like, but no, then you're taking away people's aspects of their experiences, their identity, you know, we can't really treat everybody as the same. I mean, yeah, in some utopic world, maybe, but not now because we're not, our experience has not been the same. My experiences after 9-11 were definitely not the same as my husband's experiences after 9-11. Right. Everyone talks, you know, I hear a lot of people talk about how you know, September 12th, 2001 was the most patriotic day in American history. My family, right. was, it was terrifying. We bought American flag, everything. I remember like throwing a hissy fit. I was probably like 12 years old when that mm-hmm. happened. I remember throwing the biggest hissy fit in the world. Like I wanted to go to the mall with my friend, but she was white and her family was white. And my parents were like, I don't think it's a good idea. And I just threw a temper tantrum. Like, why can't I be allowed to go to the mall? So my mom dressed me head to toe. Like everything I wore had some American flag up here. Yeah. So. And then I went and I got followed around in the store, like the store the size of this room is, is Claire. So it's tiny and, and I could tell, and I was 12. Like, I'm right. not, you know, but the assumption, you're brown, you're a terrorist. So I think there, you know, that is the piece of critical race theory. Like we are able to critically examine our differences. And yeah, sometimes we do need to look at what our differences is in order to come together and like, be able to treat people equally. And sometimes it's not even about equality. I think it's equity. Yeah, exactly. My son, he's two and I have a book for him that explains it based on like animals and pairs. Like a bunny can reach a pair with using three chairs and a bear can reach it with one. And sometimes that that's fair. It's not always about everyone getting the same or getting the same treatment based on what that need is. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful imagery uh, when you talk about equity is, is kind of seeing that, you know, like there's a lot of memes out there too with an apple tree that's twisted or, you know, watching a baseball game behind a, a fence and, you know, different heights and different setups. And then, you know, the last of it, it, a lot of times is related to justice and how that's even different than equity and, you know, understanding some of that concept. And, And I really do feel like I had a conversation with someone the other day who was talking trash about adolescence nowadays, a very old man-ish kind of, well, you know, these kids, they're eating Tide Pods and doing all this gasoline stuff on TikTok and everything of this nature, like we're screwed. And I said to him, like, you realize every generation has that. 
Right? You know, my generation was jackass and me and my friends ran around the mall and pretended to run into signs and like do stupid things. I hid in a box one time. My best friend and I had a box fight when they were throwing out boxes. And uh, I think it was, what store was it? I don't even know what store. It was like a Walmarty store in the mall. And we were fighting with boxes. Guy came out, yelled at us, kept, kept doing it. Guy came out. My friend just stood there. I unfolded the box and sat down and he, the guy couldn't find me. He was like so mad, right? And I mean, it's a story that we love to tell because it was so ridiculous, but also very age appropriate for the age we were at, right? And so the guy we were talking about, I used that story. Like we did stupid stuff too, but what was missing a lot of times is uh, this ability to fight for change. And that's something I see in adolescence right now that that's so powerful and so strong. It makes me really excited about the future because I feel like, you know, w- whatever kind of hit for them, they're taking it and they're working on making a change, even if they're hesitant about it, or even if it's just voting, you know, those things are so powerful that I'm really excited about where they're at. And I'm really excited to raise a daughter as that kind of comes up because I do think we'll be able to have these conversations at younger ages and people tended to stay away from them. I remember not having conversations, even the sex conversation with my dad. I was like 17 or 18 when he had that conversation with me. And I was like, I I don't know what you think, but like, we're good, dad. We're good. We don't have to have this conversation. But, you know, we're, my, my nephews, uh, my daughter, you know, we're having these conversations earlier and there are these resources out there earlier and earlier. And I think it's really critical to kind of examine and, and be able to say, no, it's not about being colorblind. It's about seeing people and seeing color and, and supporting and honoring and being connected regardless of that. Right. I think like representation, it really comes down to representation and it matters so much. And, you know, growing up, there were very few, you know, Indian characters, brown characters. I mean, the only in like Disney princess I could relate to was Jasmine um, and things like that. And now there's so many more, you know, cultures being represented um, in the media. And I'm really excited to raise a child in, in this age where there are like like you said so many more resources and that was really I think the biggest thing that was really important to me is you know when when I knew we were pregnant I mean I just I needed to know what the sex was because I can't not know things yeah I was very mindful in, in not telling anybody until we did a gender reveal baby shower because I didn't want it to be gendered from the get-go and and that tends to see how it is and I've been really mindful of like well I don't want to push him into any one direction let yeah. him make up like whatever he wants to play with and right now he's into cars and trucks like, typical boy stuff but yeah he's mine he's into Barbie dolls tomorrow like whatever and you can do both and I'm very I think in terms of like the education resources even finding a daycare is very mindful and asking like well what do you do about diversity how do you like train and you know show me the kind of equipment that you have like it was very careful and just finding a child care center that would use 
have like dolls of different ethnicities, books that would showcase different groups of people and things like that. So yeah. I think it is, it's really, as much as there are so many things we want to shelter them from and all the things that are really heavy on our hearts these days, it is a really yeah. great, also great opportunity to raise them in this, in this time where we can have these conversations. Yeah. There's vacuuming going on. I don't know if you can hear that, so I apologize. Well, someone like mowing the lawn behind me. <laughs> okay, good. But I, I love all, all that stuff. I mean, I posted recently, my daughter painted my nails. Uh, it was good to kind of engage in that way and break, breaking through these stereotypes. She also sword fights with me and loves dragons. And so it's great to cultivate all areas and not have it be gendered. Um, and you're right, like the, the shows out there my daughter's name is Mira and there's a show on Disney called Mira, the Royal detective. And yes. she's so excited that her name's in it, but it's also Indian culture and like very yeah, cool. Yeah. And she's asking so questions, <laughs> pronunciations and all this stuff. And I'm, I'm just like, this is fantastic to, to open this up. Yeah, no, I was so excited when I saw about that show and like I did more research and it's actually like Indian and Indian American actors and actors. Yeah voicing these roles as well so it's, it's actually not just representation face value but behind the scenes representation as well and I think knowing that it really just adds a whole new intentionality behind it and it matters yeah she's also into Elena of Avalor which is also really great because it, it's uh Latinx kind of culture mm -hmm. as well same thing I, I think Disney's although the history of Disney is really suspect, right? And they've, they've come up with some really shady things and really racist and sexist things. I think some of the newer stuff out there is really empowering and really diverse. And even the Tangled series, I don't know if you've ever watched that. I love Tangled. Super empowered. Have you watched the TV series? Not, I haven't watched the series. I, I find myself sitting down when she watches them and watching it with her because it's really about empowered uh, female perspectives and then also supportive, you know, characters. Uh, so Flynn Rider's character, Eugene, I think is his real name. Um, there's a whole story arc where he doesn't ask her to marry him because she just found this freedom and he's trying to respect that freedom and not force something. And then there's a lot of, you know, characters who sword fight and, you know, how she's not a damsel in distress. I, you know, it's just really cool that this is out there so people can, younger kids, and even some adults can learn from it, right? Um, I think that and, was the thing about Frozen was like, I think that was the first Disney princess where it wasn't uh, here, we have to have a, like our knight in shining armor save the damsel in distress princess it was about sisterly love and it wasn't like a true love kit true love kit wasn't between a man and a woman it was the sisters and that have you seen frozen 2 like my listeners are probably tired of me talking about frozen 2 but i love that movie um just because of, of the same thing it talks about emotions it talks about grief it talks about despair and, you know, Kristoff's character has some really cool anti-toxic masculinity in there, too, where he sings about emotions and his feelings. But then also, uh, spoiler alert, if anyone hasn't watched it, but when they meet up at the end, they so Kristoff and Anna separate because they have to go on different missions and Anna apologized. And he said, my love's not that fragile. 
like that she would need to apologize for, you know, going to help her sister. Um, so yeah, so I, I could go on about all this stuff, but very awesome. And I want to be mindful of our own individual families and how our children are probably chomping at the bits because we're not around. So I got two last questions for you that I use with all the podcasts and uh, you can answer in any order. They kind of go in tandem. So um, because I'm a huge geek, they are about superheroes. So the first one is uh, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? And then the second question would be, what do you think your real life superpower is? All right. So the answer to the first one, and I've thought about this one a lot before. I love Rogue from X-Men. Nice. As much as she doesn't see the value in her power, I know she like talks about how, you know, it feels isolating. She can't touch people, like the, you know, value of connection. Mm-hmm. I would love that power because she could literally take anyone else's Yeah. But it feels like kind of like limitless in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be my my power. Um, the power I have in real life. I don't know, I think I think I get made fun of for feeling deeply. I cry at commercials and stupid things, fan fiction that I read and like my husband will tease me. But I think that's part of just me. Like I feel really deeply. And so like when I care about somebody, everything I have is is devoted to that person. I think that makes me a really good therapist because I really care about my clients and I want the best for them. Awesome. Have you read, do you read Harry Potter fan fiction? Yeah. (laughs) I'm the biggest Harry Potter geek. Like I would study like sheet of 40 pages for trivia. I've never lost trivia. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Have you read the Malfoy, like Hermione, like ship that that everyone's talking about? of the ship honestly I don't I also find some of the the Draco Hermione Dramini shipping um to be very explicit most fan fiction is really explicit I feel like yeah they take I it to a different with that because of the age group that we yeah. all when we were reading it and like it wasn't very like it's not a very romantic Series. Gotcha. Like I read more of that like Twilight stuff that way, but I can't read Harry Potter. Like I just need like just like give me storyline without all the sex. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel that way when we watch Outlander. My wife and I are like, can we fast forward through this part and just kind of get back to the story? Cause it's a five minute, you know, yeah. makeup or whatever. Like that, yeah. Yeah. Well so honored so 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 honored to talk to you today i know we're going to collaborate a little bit more um but i really thank you for your time and being open and honest and sharing your stories and your experiences because i think this is kind of what we need we need to put some of this stuff in the forefront and think have people think about what it feels like to not be able to go to the mall when you're 12 without getting geared up in patriotic wear and still being followed around or being worried to take your son out and just go for a walk, you know, I, I think the, these are the things that, that we need to know and, and be challenged by, and then also process through and, and rectify in our society if we're gonna move forward. So thank you again, I'm really right, so Good to be on, thank you for having me, and I look forward to working with you in the future.
Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast, please outreach to us at info at the Promethean Project.org. If you want to learn more about the Promethean Project or if you would like to donate to our cause, you can reach us at the Promethean Project.org. If you really do enjoy this podcast, please share with your friends, like our posts on social media and Instagram and on Facebook. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any podcast app that you like to listen to. Again, thank you for taking a listen. And remember that the most important step is always the next one.